Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Job chapter 27. This is the second chapter in the fourth and final speech in the third round of dialogue as Job continues to reply to Brother Bildad. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. And Job again took up his discourse and said, As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty, who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood and my tongue will not utter deceit. Far be it from me to say that you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. In essence, we should probably understand this paragraph as introducing the conclusion to Job's entire presentation. The words in verse 1 there, and again, Job took up his discourse. That way of introducing content inside the body of an ongoing speech is unique here. And so many people believe that this is intended to signal that Job is bringing his argument in for a landing. He's summarizing and restating his basic position. He's saying, I agree with your essential view of the universe. I I believe what you believe about God, but I will not except the implications you understand to be self-evident. I believe that God is just. I believe that sin is punished. But I will not, therefore, accept that my incredible suffering is due to some magnificent sin in my life. I won't admit that just to please you or even to end my tribulation, if such a bargain were even possible. I don't believe that's what's going on. And so I will not say that I do. In this speech, Job bravely and resolutely maintains his personal integrity. And yet he then goes on to essentially affirm the theological presuppositions of his accusers. Verses 7 to 23 sound so much like the basic argument of the three friends that some commentators actually suggest that this is the missing speech of Zophar. You remember that in this fourth and final round, I mentioned that there was no speech from Zophar. Now, we understood that to signal that the argument of the friends was losing steam. They had said everything there was to say, and still, Job had not confessed any glaring sin that would account for his recent calamities. Therefore, given the absence of a speech by Zophar, and given how much Job seems to sound like his friends here, Some scholars actually say that there must be a missing verse or two introducing this as Zophar's speech. Somewhere along the way, perhaps an editor or a copyist became confused and mistakenly identified it as part of the speech of Job. Is that what's going on here? I don't think so at all. I I think that point of view misses the thrust of Job's speech entirely. The, The point is that Job does essentially agree with his friends. He, he believes that the righteous are rewarded. He believes that the wicked are punished. And he expects that this will take place substantially in this present life. So he says all of that in this speech. Job's 
problem isn't with the essence of his friend's theology. It is with the application of their theology to his particular situation. And it isn't just his friends that Job believes have misapplied their principles. Job is suggesting that it may well be that God, too, is misapplying his general management philosophy in Job's case. Job isn't arguing with the friend's conception of the universe. He is arguing that there may have been some kind of oversight or glitch. Tremper Longman III puts it this way. He affirms, he, Job, affirms the retribution principle, but he does not believe God is rightly applying it in his particular case, which is why he wants to go and meet God and set him straight. Closed quote. So that's what's going on here. That's why this speech of Job sounds like it could have been made by one of Job's friends, because it could have. This speech would have fit nicely in Zophar's mouth. But I believe it came from Job's mouth. I think the text is telling us that Job is no more enlightened than his friends. The only difference between Job and his friends is that Job actually knows that he really isn't hiding any grievous wickedness or iniquity, which is why he is so frustrated with God and so eager for a personal encounter. Everyone is in the dark here, and everyone is equally in need of additional revelation. And you can hear that for yourself in the speech that follows, beginning at verse 7. Let my enemy be as the wicked. Let him who rises up against me be as the unrighteous. For what is the hope of the godless when God cuts him off, when God takes away his life? Will God hear his cry when distress comes upon him? Will he take delight in the Almighty? Will he call upon God at all times? I will teach you concerning the hand of God. What is with the Almighty I will not conceal. Behold, all of you have seen it yourselves. Why then have you become altogether vain? Now let me pause here to explain this introduction. I said that Job's speech here in verses 7 to 23 basically mirrors the speeches made by his friends, and that is true. But he begins by essentially calling down a curse of sorts upon his malicious accusers. You see, Job agrees with all the legal principles being espoused here. That isn't the issue. The issue from Job's perspective is that all of those legal principles have been unjustly brought to bear upon him. He's being treated as if he's a wicked person deserving of terrible suffering. He doesn't argue that wicked people don't deserve suffering. He argues that he is not a wicked person. And thus, in accordance with the laws that he affirms, he calls for punishment to be brought against those who have wrongly brought these charges against him. Francis Anderson says usefully here, in Israelite law, the penalty for malicious prosecution of the innocent was the punishment attached to the crime wrongly charged, closed quote. So if you wrongly accused someone of murder in those days, so as to secure for them the death penalty, if it could be proved that you brought the charges knowingly and maliciously, then the punishment you sought for them would be summarily applied to you. That's what Job is saying here. You want to have me declared guilty. Well, I declare you guilty. I declare you guilty of malicious persecution. And therefore, 
all of my suffering should rightly be transferred to you. And then he goes on to describe the punishment. Verse 13, this is the portion of a wicked man with God and the heritage that oppressors receive from the Almighty. If his children are multiplied, it is for the sword and his descendants have not enough bread. Those who survive him, the pestilence buries, and his widows do not weep. Though he heap up silver like dust and pile up clothing like clay, he may pile it up, but the righteous will wear it, and the innocent will divide the silver. He builds his house like a moth's, like a booth that a watchman makes. He goes to bed rich, but will do so no more. He opens his eyes, and his wealth is gone. Terrors overtake him like a flood. In the night, a whirlwind carries him off. The east wind lifts him up, and he is gone. It sweeps him out of his place. It hurls at him without pity. He flees from its power in headlong flight. It claps its hands at him and hisses at him from its place. As we mentioned above, verses 7 to 23 espouse basically the same worldview as that advanced by the three friends in their various speeches. Job, too, believes that even if the wicked appear to prosper in the short term, eventually judgment will catch up to them. He may have a quiver full of children, but all of those children will certainly come to a bad end. They may die in battle, they may end up in poverty, or they may die in a plague. But one way or or the other. Eventually, the blessings of a wicked man will turn into a curse. And the same will occur with all of his possessions. He may build a beautiful house, but he will lose it. Someone else will eventually enjoy it. He will go to bed rich one night and wake up poor the next morning. He will try to run from God, but the scorching wind of God's justice will eventually chase him down. That's what Job says. He says, I believe that. And I would like that now to be applied to my so-called friends. They have maliciously accused me and have failed to convict me and should therefore now be made to bear the same punishment that has wrongly fallen on me. That's what he says. Now, what do we do with a speech like that? Well, I, I think we need to hear it for what it is. I have a friend in the counseling ministry who likes to say that hurt people hurt people. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing here. When you are hurting and when you feel like people don't understand you, then you lash out. You say things that you don't mean. And, and you think that if other people are hurting, it might make you feel a little better. And of course it doesn't. Pain can't be shared in that way. It isn't something you can transfer to another human being. What we see really in this story is how hard pain and suffering is to make sense of in this broken and fallen world. What we see is that there is much in this world that really ought not to be. Things aren't now the way we sense they should be. Things aren't operating as we truly believe they should. There appears to be a virus in the cosmic moral code. And of course, as Bible readers, we know that to be true. We know that to be unresolved in the biblical storyline until the life and death of Jesus Christ. He bore that virus on the cross. 
He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Isaiah 53, 4-5. But from Job's perspective, of course, those great and glorious events still lie in the future. And for the moment, he has sunk again into a valley and has lost sight of them. But whether he sees them or not, because of the faithfulness and love of the Lord, they are there. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 